0: Washington, D.C., this is on the ground. At the historic March on Washington for Gaza, Palestinian Americans spoke out about the murder of family members and about the terror and destruction by Israel on their homeland.
1: No more of our tax paying dollars to bomb our homes, kill our families, torture, and ethnically cleanse our people. No more. Our collective message to President Biden and his administration is to say,
0: permanent ceasefire now! Ceasefire now!
1: Ceasefire now! now!
0: And in our first episode of The F Word for 2024, historian Gerald Horne discusses synergy between the settler colonial regimes of Israel and the United States. They think
2: that they are reenacting U.S. settler colonialism in the 19th century, when so many of the indigenous of North America were liquidated, I don't think they realize that times have changed and we refuse to allow history to repeat itself.
0: All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, OnTheGroundShow.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam First, some headlines. In the days after the Republic of South Africa delivered to the World Court its powerful genocide case against Israel, the Zionist colony continued its U.S. backed aerial bombing, killing 250 people each day, often in areas it had declared as safe zones. According to the Gaza Health Ministry, more than 24,000 people have been killed, mostly women and children, more than 7,000 people are missing and presumed dead, and more than 61,000 have been injured. And have little to no health care as Gaza's one remaining functioning hospital is reportedly being bombed. As of Thursday, January 18th, Israel continued to block food, water, and fuel to a population that the United Nations says is being systematically starved. Also, as of the 18th, Israel had cut off all internet communications for nearly a week, yet there is still leaked information about ongoing war crimes, which include reports of kidnapping, torture, and flattening with explosives Gaza's one remaining university, Al-Isra University, along with 3,000 rare artifacts in a national museum near the campus. Meanwhile, missiles continue to fly between countries in the region and outside entities, including the U.S. and the U.K. It is not clear when or if that feared line of a wider regional war will be crossed. More than 100 journalists have been killed in Gaza, most of them Palestinian. In fact, more journalists have been killed in this ongoing attack than any other conflict in recorded history. According to the Palestinian Journalist Syndicate, the Committee to Protect Journalists and Reporters Without Borders, there is clear evidence that the Israeli military is intentionally targeting journalists and their families. On January 17th, a vigil was held on Capitol Hill to honor these slain news and information workers. Chantel James has more.
3: Defending Rights and Dissent, in partnership with Freedom of the Press Foundation, held a vigil for slain journalists in Palestine at the U.S. Capitol that was attended by Congressional Representatives Rashida Tlaib and Cori Bush. Corey Bush offered these remarks.
4: We are here today because this needless, senseless, and merciless violence against Palestinians is the deadliest conflict in history for journalists. We are here today to mourn the over 100 journalists killed by the Israeli government. The Israeli government's silencing of and violence against journalists began long before October the 7th. In fact, for decades, as Palestinians have lived under their illegal occupation, the silencing of their voices and stories has been a tactic to maintain control and maintain support from the West. After all, it's much easier to ignore and cover up injustice if it goes untold. What we have seen since October 7th is the continuation of a pattern of systematic violence. The Committee to Protect Journalists found that before October 7th, Israeli soldiers had killed at least 20 journalists over 22 years, and none had ever been charged or held accountable. One of those journalists was the prominent, which we just heard, Palestinian-American Al Jazeera reporter, reporter Shireen Abu Akleh, who was killed by an Israeli soldier while wearing a press vest. We still need justice for Shireen, and we also need justice for Hamza al dadu for Somer Abu Dhaka, and every other journalist that has been killed by the Israeli government. I would also like to call out the silence by the press in this country and most of the West as their very own peers are being slaughtered for doing the very jobs they do. I'm trying to figure out why it is that so many have the courage to speak out about the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and the arbitrary detention of Evan Gerskovich. But few have anything to say as dozens and dozens of journalists are killed in Gaza. Why do we yet again see a red line in our solidarity and humanity when the journalists are Palestinian? If democracy truly dies in darkness, what does that say about the collective silence about these mass atrocities? So let me be clear as I possibly can. If you actually believe in freedom of the press, your solidarity cannot be conditional. Intentionally or indiscriminately targeting journalists, it is a war crime. Just like the targeting of all civilians is a war crime. Just like the targeting of medical facilities is a war crime. Just like the forced starvation and the withholding of water and electricity is a war crime. Just like the collective punishment of 2.3 million people is a war crime. This needs to stop. Stop the war crimes. Stop our government's complicity. Stop the violence against journalists and against all civilians. We demand accountability and a ceasefire now. Thank you.
3: In the first three weeks of this escalation of Israeli aggression against Palestinians, half of journalists in Gaza and elsewhere in Palestine lost their lives, deliberately targeted by a regime that registers the residences of all people in Gaza in what is the highest number of journalists killed in one conflict in over 30 years. The number of journalists now killed in Gaza means that an average of a journalist a day has been murdered over the past little more than a 100 days. As journalists in the core of the American empire hear it on the ground, We hold the flame of the memory of these journalists and stand in solidarity with journalists, courageously giving light to truth globally. This is Chantal James. And finally, in culture and media, first, a story out of
0: D.C. with a planned move by the district's professional sports teams.
5: Lydia Curtis has more. D.C. grassroots organizer Ron Moten and Alexandria, Virginia residents came together outside the Capital One Arena in downtown Washington on the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday to oppose the plan to move monumental sports and entertainment to Virginia's Potomac Yard. The move, proposed by owner Ted Leonsis and supported by some Virginia leaders, would relocate the Wizards basketball team and the Capitals' hockey team, causing businesses in the downtown Washington area to lose thousands of customers. The move will cost $2 billion in public-private money and would include a new arena and separate concert venue, a broadcast studio, and new restaurants and retail on the Route 1 site. Opponents say the plan betrays the trust of D.C. residents and fans and ignores the wishes of Alexandrians. It's about losing thousands of jobs in D.C. Many that will help our neighbors in need who depend on multiple streams of income to survive in Washington, D.C. Right. It's about 18 black businesses in Southeast D.C. who dreams are standing to be killed by these broken promises by monumental sports. It's about keeping ticket prices reasonable That's for the right. least fortunate as they prepare to add taxes on their tickets that are already Jewish too expensive high. for most. Stop so not move. only stop will they move, move, but they will make sure that low income people will never get to come to the games. If you would like to weigh in and learn more, use hashtag stop the move or hashtag don't mute DC. On the ground, this is Lydia Curtis.
0: In South Africa, the renowned photographer Peter Magubani, celebrated for capturing the struggle against apartheid in that country, most notably the 1976 Soweto uprising, died on New Year's Day, just before his 92nd birthday. According to AllAfrica.com, Magubani's funeral was attended by dignitaries, including President Cyril Ramaphosa. And the ceremony, quote, Emphasized the importance of Magubani's storytelling through photography, noting that the police feared his camera more than stones or petrol bombs. And finally, South Africa's case against Israel in the World Court for genocide in Gaza is having repercussions outside the world of diplomacy. More than 300 Palestinian sports clubs and civil society groups have launched a campaign to ban Israel from the 2024 Paris Olympics. Athletic clubs participating in the hashtag ban Israel underscore campaign organized by the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel include men's and women's soccer, basketball, and volleyball teams, A recent report published by the Palestine Football Association stated that at least 85 Palestinian athletes, including 55 soccer players, have been killed by Israeli bombs and bullets, including Hani al-Masri, a former player and general manager of the Palestinian Olympic soccer team. The campaign statement reads, quote, to allow Israel in the midst of a genocide to participate in the upcoming Olympic Games would signal to the international community that the IOC approves of the gravest of war crimes, end quote. Again, the campaign is hashtag ban Israel underscore campaign. And those are headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground. Stay with us.
6: joining us here today. Are we ready to march for Gaza? My name is Leila Al-Haddad and I am a proud Palestinian from Gaza. The stories you will hear today are from Palestinian families from Gaza across the United States. And they summarize the unspeakable loss and suffering and trauma of an entire nation right now. Tragedy that has been repeated in two million households, 250 times a day for the past 100 days. These voices, in the words of Arundhati Roy, are the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard. And today, they are here to narrate their own experiences. And so I implore you, to listen, to learn, and to be moved to action. Unfortunately, there are no words in the human language to accurately capture the layer of trauma and tragedy our families and countless others like them have endured. We are hurting, we are grieving, and we are silenced. And yet we are obligated to speak out. Together, we, everyone you see here today on stage and those standing below, have had 2,000 members of our families killed in just three short months. Often, as you will hear today, Israel has erased entire bloodlines in a span of a few short hours. Those who are lucky enough to survive are facing unimaginable realities. Displaced, dismembered, paralyzed, or dispossessed of everything everything they knew and loved. This has been a senseless and a deliberate slaughter, a genocide in every meaning of the word, on everything and everyone in Gaza. Make no mistake about it. It has literally ripped families apart, destroyed entire cities, shattered everyone to their core, and left the survivors with nothing to go back to. And it is happening on our dime. Shame. Shame. Shame! Shame! I'm giving it over to our first speaker, Mazen.
7: Good afternoon, everybody. And certainly you all look very strong. Thank you for being here. We're all here for a good cause. And I'm going to tell you a story of my family. My name is Mazen Beder. I'm a small business leader and and a father of two wonderful children and two sweet grandchildren in North Virginia. I was born and raised in Gaza, where I spent my summers playing by the Sea of Gaza with my friends. I'm also a descendant of refugees from Palestine, Palestinian village of Karatea, from where my mother and father were uh, displaced, expelled in 1948, Nakba. Every morning in my way to work, for as long as cell phone existed, I used to call my mother in Gaza to hear her voice. It comforted me. But since the beginning of the brutal Israeli bombardment and aggression, all I heard and felt over the phone was the fear in her voice and the sound of constant bombardment. Suddenly our lives were reversed, as I was the one who was trying to comfort her. On the evening of December 23rd, Israel bombed my sister's house in central Gaza, killing 10 of my closest family members at once. My loving mother, Aziza, two of my sisters, one of them is blind, their husbands five of my nephews and and nieces, including my niece, Asma, who was getting ready to get married in November. My mother had survived more than a dozen wars, becoming a refugee over and over within her Palestinian homeland. They had dreams and lives to live. They loved and they were loved in return until their final moment they displayed the generous and resilient spirit of Gaza that Gaza embodies. They left their house to make room for another displayed family and chose to shelter together instead at my sister's house. As fate would have it, their house survived, and so did the newly displayed families. But my family did not. Seconds before she was killed, My sister sent her 20-year-old son, a survivor of six Israeli wars and assaults in Gaza, to deliver food to her hungry neighbors. That generous, selfish act is what ended up saving his life. My family was buried in body bags in a mass grave. We learned that the second half of my mother's body was found the next day. She had two burials, even in death. We are denied dignity. I'm often asked what people can do to ease our suffering, and my answer remains the same. Do what you're doing now. Speak up. I call on my fellow Americans to not just demand, but force an immediate and permanent ceasefire. We demand that President Biden and the Congress to end military funding and weapons transfers to Israel that killed my family and all the other families. Thank you.
8: Hello everybody. My name is Adam. I'm a pharmacist, I'm an American, and a Palestinian from Gaza. I never thought my family would live through an experience of a genocide until November 22nd, when over 100 family members had died actually by Israel. Israel took my life, my soul, by killing my 83 years old father, mother, and a brother. My father was the salt of earth, Israel killed a man who loved life, loved peace, loved people, loved nature. And most of all, he loved his grandkids. My five-year-old asked me one day, Baba all these 19 pictures you're looking at. And I have to hold down my tears. They were 19 family members, picture of 19 family members that were slaughtered. By Israel. Thank you, thank you. My cousin Yasser was not just a cousin, he was more than a brother to me. And he was killed by Israeli bombing along the side of his wife, six kids, and two grandchildren. The tale of each family member who was murdered is a testimony of ongoing genocide of my Palestinian people. My Palestinian people whom I love, they were all killed in one day. The most troubling aspect of Israel mass killing of my Palestinian family is when they bombed the first house and my family member and friends came to assist in actually digging out the people who were killed and the remains of those who still under the rubble. Israel bombed them again and again until they killed over 104 of my family members. (laughs) Dozens of my family member bodies are still under the rubble. Biden, President Biden can easily put a stop to this genocide to the Palestinian people. He can easily pick up the phone and call Israel to stop this madness, stop the genocide of the Palestinian people. We call on the U.S. government to end their participation, complicity, of Israel crime against humanity. And we demand a full swift accountability to U.S. Israelis officials who actually were involved in this Palestinian genocide. Thank you so much. Long live Palestine.
9: Assalamu alaikum rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Peace be upon you all. I'm praying for the peace for the whole entire world. My name is Alaa Hussein Ali. I'm a physician from Michigan. My roots and my childhood were in Gaza. I have lost over a hundred members of my family in this genocide more than 60 children, half of them under the rubble. I'm gonna share one of the stories that happened in November. My brother, Muhammad, and his pregnant wife, Ruba, and their three children, who are small angels, five, three, and one, with my Ruba family, lived with them in a rimal area in Gaza. The bombing and the airstrikes were all over around them. So they decided to evacuate to the south with the promise from the Israeli government that it will be safe. Before they left, as you know, the Israeli government stopped the food, water, medicine, electricity, Internet, phone calls, everything was stopped. The trip from the north to the south is the most dangerous trip that anybody can experience. My brother went out looking for water for this dangerous trip. And the hours go by. He never came back. He was killed by an Israeli sniper. He was shot several times in his chest. And he was found... Five days later, in one of the hospitals in Gaza. My sister-in-law, newly widowed, still mourning, decided to remain in her home. She said, I'm not going to leave to the south anymore. Life doesn't have any meanings. Her father was begging her to go with him to the south. She said, no. Her father took the rest of the family, 17 members, and they went in a big truck to the south, but the Israeli government decided otherwise. They're not gonna let them reach the south. Just before there, they airstrike them, and the whole 17 were killed. They were in pieces. They were collected flesh by flesh and limb by limb. Ruba lost her entire family, lost my brother, who are her beloved husband, her family. She has been displaced since then seven times, from house to house. Displaced seven times from house to house, from a tent to a tent, homeless, alone, with three children, pregnant, in her sixth month of pregnancy in need of an emergency C-section at birth and no hospitals there, no anesthesia. She will face the death at the time of labor. I was planning to return to Gaza this winter with my family to see my brother Muhammad. I haven't seen him for 20 years and he was Murdered, killed, with a cold-blooded soldier. And the worst is I paid for that bullet that killed my brother with my money taxes dollar that I pay every year. By continuing to arm Israel and and failing to call for a ceasefire, President Biden has my family's blood on his hands. We demand that Biden administration and congress called for an immediate and permanent ceasefire we demand that they stop sending weapons to israel to kill our beloved one and we call on all of you to stand with us and hold our government accountable so our children can grow up and our families can live thank you and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh
1: Assalamu alaikum D.C. May God's peace and blessings be upon you all and our people of Palestine and especially our families and loved ones in Gaza. My name is Randa Muhtasib. I'm a new mother and a physical therapist living here in Maryland. I'm a proud Palestinian American from Gaza, the homeland of my mother. You're looking at a picture of our beloved cousin, Ahmed cake. a dedicated husband and a loving father who is no longer with us. On October 10th, Israel ordered Ahmed's family to evacuate their home. Ahmed and his pregnant wife, Lina, as quickly as humanly possible, gathered all their belongings and their three- and five-year-old daughters, to flee to an area that was supposed to be a safe zone. Israel bombed the building next to them in this safe zone where they had sought refuge. Pregnant Lena instinctively threw her pregnant body over her young daughters to try and protect them. Within minutes, Lena found herself in an ambulance with her daughters and the only thing that consoled her while hearing their cries is that it meant that they were still alive. That being said, they were all heavily injured. Lena and her children were sent to Al Shifa hospital, screaming from pain. During an emergency C-section that was performed on Lena, she was without anesthesia, Lina had discovered that her long-awaited six-month-old fetus son that Ahmed never got to see was killed as the result of the injuries that she has sustained from the blast. In fact, doctors found shards and fragments from the explosions piercing all the way down into her uterus. Meanwhile, Ahmed was nowhere in sight. Ten hours later, his body was found under the rubble. The Israeli airstrike on the building in the safe zone murdered him. Israeli soldiers abducted another one of my cousins and his family at gunpoint, stripped them down naked, and brutally tortured them and humiliated them as they fled south to seek refuge from the violence in the north while they were walking down the humanitarian passages. Just before they were even able to flee and leave the north, his six-year-old son endured a gunshot wound with a bullet that stayed in his forearm that was raising a white flag. They were following every single order to pass through safely. And yet, he had to walk with his mother after his father was abducted. A ten-hour walk on foot. A six-year-old boy with a gunshot wound in his forearm that carried the white flag. That they were asked to, to make sure that they stay safe, but it's all lies on lies. And I'm here to say, no more. No more of our tax paying dollars to bomb our homes, kill our families, torture, and ethnically cleanse our people. No more. My message to President Biden and Congress, our collective message to President Biden and his administration is to say, permanent ceasefire now. Ceasefire now. Ceasefire now. Ceasefire now. Ceasefire now. Ceasefire now. Cease now. Cease now. Cease now. And no more. No more weapons, no more military funding to Israel. No more. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Again, I would like to finalize with May peace be upon you. May peace be with Palestine and the people of Gaza. Long live Palestine. Assalamu alaykum DC.
0: You have been listening to Palestinian Americans speaking January 13th on Freedom Plaza in Washington, D.C. At the historic march on Washington for Gaza, which organizers said drew 400,000 people, Palestinian Americans from the besieged area spoke out about the murder of family members and about the terror and destruction by Israel on their homeland. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show, and we are in need of your support if you rely on the show, if you listen to the show, you come to look forward to what we are able to offer every week. Please support us on Patreon at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show. And you can also give on our website through PayPal or other means if you want to send a check. All that information is there. But please, please support us. I want to thank our supporters on Patreon so much. And for those who are already supporting, if you can tell a friend who you know, would love to sign up, we need the support. Patreon.com forward slash on the ground show or go to on the ground show.org. Thank you.
2: ناس
8: يعبر هي ضلوا دائما يدر يضلوا طول الليل يندرش كل وين بس مع كلماتي لا ما في مثل بس فاس جربت حتى نياوي يلا أب أدمي راح أكون معك أناني في
0: This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org Voices of resistance from the nation's capital, I'm Esther Ivarum. And it's the third week of the month, the third week of the new year for us. And so we have a renewed commitment to our series, The F Word, on fascism. And joining me for this episode is our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the Moore's Professor of History of African-American Studies at the University of Houston and the author of more than 40 books. Welcome back to the show, Gerald.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, gosh, there's so much to unpack when it comes to fascism and this current moment that we're living in. Of course, we're going to go to what's happening in Gaza, but there are also many repercussions here at home. Where do you want to start?
2: Well, let me start right here in Southeast Texas, where I have firsthand reportage about The rise of fascist trends in the United States of America. About two or three blocks from where I am now sitting, just the other day, there was a demonstration of Nazis with swastikas on their placards, and their slogan was, quote, make America white again, and also down with, quote, Jewish supremacy, unquote. Now, by the way, this was dealt with in the local newspaper, the Houston Chronicle. And I should say that with regard to that latter slogan, this points up the fact that I don't think the corporate media has done a credible job in terms of reporting on this ultra-right opposition to Israel. Most of the time, they tell us about the Christian Zionists and their support for Israel. And I think that if we're not careful, that the Zionists and the Jewish community writ large will be scapegoated for the impending decline of U.S imperialism, which is certainly on the agenda. And this allows me to point the finger of accusation at Bill Ackman, a Persian capital. A Zionist in good standing recalled that he led the charge against President Cloding Gay of Harvard University, the first black president of that Ivy League institution. He's now leading a crusade against DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in fact, according to the New York Times, he gave a $1 million donation to Dean Phillips, who we had thought was going to be challenging Mr. Biden from the left in the Democratic primaries. But alas, after that $1 million donation, Mr. Phillips dropped DEI from his website. Back to Texas, what's really particularly alarming, besides Nazis demonstrating in my backyard, is that what's going on right now has earmarks to 1860, when forces in Dixie were clashing with U.S. federal forces. That's happening along the border as we speak. That is to say that there have been clashes between the United States Border Patrol and Texas Rangers and other Texas Armed forces. There has been a lot of loose talk about an invasion of Mexico from Texas on the spurious ground that Mexico is not only not curbing migrants from their country into Texas, but also that Mexico is supposedly responsible for the growing drug epidemic in Texas and in the United States as a whole. And then there's the almost normative inhumanity in Texas, where you see the governor shipping shoeless migrants who have crossed into Texas to sub-zero temperatures in Chicago. There was a picture in the paper the other day of some of these migrants from into Texas being shipped to New York where they're sleeping in the snow. This is leading to a kind of moral coarsening. Which is a precondition for the rise of fascism. All the while, the backers of this inhumanity are portraying themselves as the victims. Recall our discussion about the so called war on Christmas. Recall that just this past week, Congresswoman Stefanik of upstate New York, who's auditioning to be Mr. Trump's VP nominee, has referred to the January 6, 2021 prisoners as, quote, hostages, unquote. Chuck Schumer, the Democratic minority leader, has excuse me, majority leader, (laughs) sadly enough, has contributed uh, to this nonsense by speaking of how Zionists in the United States feel alone, believe it or not, even though they have the backing of the White House and a good deal of Congress. This is the kind of up is down, down is up world that too is a precondition or the rise of fascism that Nikki Haley has contributed to by ignoring the role of slavery in the U.S. Civil War and by alleging that the United States has never been a racist country. In Davos, Switzerland, the World Economic Forum, where the global elite comes to meet and greet, the line from the 1% there is growing concern about what they see as proliferating right-wing influence in the working class, not least in the United States of America. Now, of course, we all know that as long as these folks were supporting tax cuts for that very same 1%, they were unconcerned. Uh, but now, if you look at the current issue of the economists, you'll get a glimpse of what I'm speaking about, the economists being the British neoconservative weekly. Uh, they're deftly afraid about the rise of Trump and the Trump base while many of our friends on the left, they deny that Trump has any support in the Euro-American working class. So I guess the 75 million who voted for him in 2020 were all part of the 1%. That's, I guess, called the new math. So this is part of the problem that we now face with the rise of incipient fascism.
0: Well, speaking of up being down and down being up, I wanted to get your comments on the presentation of South Africa bringing their case of genocide against Israel before the International Court of Justice. Some of the presentations there were absolutely devastating. So many mothers killed every hour. So many children killed every hour. So many children with their limbs amputated per hour. Just a a horrific, apocalyptic scene of destruction and, and murder and death. And then you have the Israel making their their case on Friday, and our Secretary of State Anthony Blinken saying that the case was without merit. And so, between seeing these horrific images on our screens every day, if we're and we're tuned into alternative or social media, and and seeing these words by elected officials and non-elected officials of, of the Biden administration, there's also this up is down, down is up. People ask to not believe their eyes. And so I definitely wanted to get your, your thoughts on that because to me, that is the makings of fascism when you tell people to believe a lie. And part of that lie is the fact that people aren't being murdered.
2: Well, even that cloud has a silver lining. The latest news is that South Africa has joined as aiders and abettors the regimes in Washington and London Uh, This is of profound importance. Now, I've consulted with some of our comrades who are international lawyers, and they tell me that it's not possible for we progressives, we descendants of enslaved Africans, to file a friend of the court brief at the International Court of Justice in the Hague, helping to bolster the case that certainly in the past that the regimes in London and Washington have supported genocide. And of course, it also leads us to the unavoidable point that we need to figure out how we can piggyback on this South Africa case to bring a renewed case following the footsteps of Paul Robeson, who in 1950 tried to bring a case for genocide against the US authorities because of the maltreatment and mistreatment of black people. Recall also that Germany, has intervened or sought to intervene on behalf of Israel. Now, my understanding is is that since we descendants of enslaved Africans do not constitute a state, that we cannot intervene. But still, I think we need to put our heads together to figure out how we can give momentum uh, to this case, not least momentum on our behalf. Because what you saw in the Hague in the last few days was very profound. And it was also the confluence of many different trends. The most immediate trend was that it was in 1652 that Dutchmen, many of whom were from The Hague, sailed to the Cape of Good Hope, as they called it, and began to colonize South Africa. And then in 2024, you have Africans from that formerly colonized land back in The Hague seeking to bring an indictment and compel a cease and desist order with regard to Israeli genocide against Palestinians. And as well, I think it underscores the growing importance of South Africa, not only South Africa, but its neighbor. Speaking of Namibia, a former German colony, this is of enormous significance, and it also underscores the growing profile of South Africa internationally. And what was even more remarkable is that Israel itself tries to preen and posture as a defender of Jewish people globally. But here you had South Africa, uh, backed by a growing number of Jewish South Africans, who were putting the lie to that canard. Recall that during the days of the fight against apartheid, the apartheid regime, which Israel supported and collaborated on with regard to developing nuclear weapons, that Many Jewish South Africans, including Joe Slovo of Lithuanian Jewish descent, who became the leader of the South African Communist Party, the leader of the armed wing of the African National Congress, Nelson Mandela's party, Uh, he of course was opposed to the Zionist project, as was his spouse Ruth First, also of Jewish descent, who was killed by a letter bomb in exile in neighboring Mozambique during the days of apartheid. And to the case itself. As you've already indicated, it was stunning in its specificity and in its detail Uh, with regard to the rise of what the South African jurists call reproductive violence. That is to say, the fact that it's becoming increasingly difficult for Palestinian women to give birth, the rise in infant mortality rates there, the contaminated water that Palestinians are forced to drink. As a result of Israeli depredations, the spread of disease, the fact that the authorities that the United Nations are charging, that about 80% of the most extreme cases of starvation globally today are in Gaza, which only had a pre-October population of 2.2 million. The fact that hospitals are being destroyed, despite the fact that we have this loose talk About deporting uh, Palestinians en masse into the Sinai Desert, even as far as Congo, according to some Israeli authorities. And uh, this would be, I'm afraid to say, complementing the ongoing project in London to deport undocumented workers in Great Britain to Rwanda, uh, which is in motion as we speak. However, once again, To the silver lining in the cloud, uh, as we examine the International Court of Justice and we acknowledge the fact that we need eight votes out of 15, there's reason to be optimistic given the presence on that body of jurists from Russia and China and Brazil and Morocco and Lebanon and Jamaica and Uganda. Of course, there are also lawyers from the United States and Japan and the G7 generally. Uh, But I think that if you just look at this case objectively, the South Africans have made a sound claim for their demand for a cease and desist order, what we would call a ceasefire. And uh, this will then go to the Security Council, where it will likely face a veto from the United States. But then perhaps the South Africans can bring this case up in the General Assembly. In any case, uh, a cease and des- desist order can be useful in terms of imposing a multilateral sanctions on Israel, which are already in motion, uh, which is causing the compression of the Israeli economy. Uh, what I mean by that is that because of the attacks by the Yemenis, it's very difficult For ships to land at Israeli ports, uh, suffocating the economy uh, because of missile strikes from Gaza as we speak, not to mention from Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. You see that northern Israel and southern Israel are being abandoned and the government has to pick up the tab as residents are staying in hotels, further adding to the anchor around the neck of the Israeli economy. So despite the fact that Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, has a material interest in continuing this conflict because this delays his going to court to face a possible prison term, it's going to be difficult for him to resist the cries and calls of change. And speaking of Mr. Netanyahu, uh, one of the things I find striking as I monitor Israeli media is how so many of the... Ultra right wing speak with U.S. accents. Uh, you know that Mr. Netanyahu himself spent a good deal of his youth in Pennsylvania and in New England.
0: It's like Philadelphia. Like I keep when I look at him, I see like Frank, Frank Rizzo. You know. <laughs> anyway,
2: <laughs> well, uh, I'm not going to give an endorsement, but I've, I've been watching the program of the Uber Hawk, uh, Caroline Glick, who also speaks. With the U.S. accent, we know that a disproportionate percentage of the settlers on the West Bank not only are from the United States, but from Brooklyn. So uh, they think that they are reenacting U.S. settler colonialism in the 19th century when so many of the indigenous of North America were liquidated. I don't think they realize that times have changed and we refuse to allow history to repeat itself.
0: Uh, before we left this whole issue of the carnage in Gaza, looking at a recent report, it talked about how Israel claims that it's killed 8,000 Hamas fighters. And that correlates to the number of men kind of documented killed, meaning that they're counting every male killed as a member of Hamas. And it reminds me that during the so called war on terror, the U.S., it was basically U.S. policy to count every male over maybe the age of 16 as a potential like terrorist in these different countries that we were conducting these illegal wars, be that in Africa, North Africa, in the in West Asia, so-called Middle East, and how Israel has just taken that play card in terms of Gaza and considering as so-called legitimate targets every male, probably over the age of 16, 17, 18, and counting them as Hamas fighter. But related, uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is just the indoctrination of people in Israel. I've seen several reports about how children as young as elementary school age are indoctrinated to basically hate what they call the Arabs. They don't really see Palestinians as people. I saw a few videos that have children singing about how it's acceptable. To you know, to kill Arabs, to to not think of them as human, to to other them, and it seems to me that that type of indoctrination is fertile ground for the type of neo-fascism or fascism that we see in Israel, because it all has an ideological, and in the case of Israel, uh, a so-called biblical or or religious tinge, especially by these settlers who. Uh, believe that there should be this greater Israel that includes all the land from the river to the sea, as well as Syria and Jordan and many, many countries that they believe that they should uh, inhabit and govern.
2: Well, we on this side of the Atlantic are well familiar with what you're discussing, because we're familiar with the fact that in the state of Florida, there was a recent controversy about supposedly teaching our children That the enslaved Africans gained skills uh, under (laughs) that they could then apply uh, post 1865 uh, during the so-called freedom era. Uh, We know that uh, as a result of the 1619 project of the New York Times and Professor Nicole Hannah Jones of Howard University, uh, which sought to put the question of enslavement of Africans front and center, the response has been the 1776 project of President Trump. The 1836 project in the state of Texas, which has as a dual mission, uh, downplaying and degrading the role of indigenous dispossession and the enslavement of Africans in the making of the United States of America. reference here, our previous comment about the GOP presidential hopeful, Nikki Haley, apparently being unaware of the role of slavery in the coming of the U.S. Civil War. Uh, Complementing all of this know nothingism is the attack on tenure at universities and colleges, that is to say, job security, particularly important for those few professors who seek to tell the truth. This could lead to a replay of what occurred in the United States in the 1950s when, during the McCarthy era, the professoriate was purged, cleansed, if you like of left wing radical and Marxist professors. So in terms of indoctrination, I'm afraid to say that the United States has a thing or three to teach the Israelis.
0: Speaking of Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis tried to kind of slip into the, the history there or what teachers were required to teach, a revisionist history of the, is it Ocochi massacre? that occurred in November 2nd and 3rd in 1920, like, you know, like Tulsa or Elaine, Arkansas, where there were 30 to 60 Black people massacred in this town. And, you know, it was really to prevent Black people from voting. That was really the point of it. But Ron DeSantis tried to put into the record that it was started because a black man had shot this white man. Right. But what happened is uh, a black man shot back. And killed one of the attackers. And so Ron DeSantis wanted to say this was also Black violence against white people. <laughs> and so, anyway, there was a big organizing among educators and people in the community to basically take a pledge that I will teach real history, I will teach the truth. And I know that the Teaching for Change has the same type of movement like that. You know, I will teach the truth in terms of. Miseducation and indoctrinization, I thought we should mention that. You're here. okay. All right, well, uh, we'll definitely uh, pick up this uh, subject again because unfortunately, it's a subject that we will keep referring back to as that there are more attacks on freedom of speech, freedom of, of teaching the truth, These are creations of revisionist history in historic Palestine, but also here in the U.S. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. And Professor Gerald Horn will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital. You can work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain onthegroundshow.org if you like the show let us know by liking us on Facebook or X Twitter or supporting us on patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow you can also write us at contact at onthegroundshow.org and I link to every show on my Instagram page which is Esther underscore Iverum. and that's I V like Victor E-R-E-M like Mary Our podcast is On the Ground with Esther Ivarum on all your podcast platforms. The music we play this hour included Palestinian Resistance by Made in Palestine, Bad Wings by The Glitch Mob, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.